Good morning again. The, the passage, the story we're going to look at today is one of those um, difficult passages. It's a story about selfishness, about um, betrayal, about hypocrisy, about injustice. It actually is a story, as we read it in a couple of minutes, it's the kind of story that should make you cringe. It will make you cringe. And you're going to ask yourself, what, this is in the Bible? This story is in the Bible? Well, yeah, it is. It's in the Bible because um, it, it's, a, it's, it's a story about the awful consequences of human sin and the way human sin plays out, but it's also a story about the power of God to bring about transformation, bring about redemption. This story we're, we're about to read and talk through together is a redemption story. It's one of the redemption stories of the Bible, and the Bible as a whole is a redemption story. It's a story about how broken human beings find life and hope and healing and redemption because of the love of God for us. So we're looking at a redemption story today. The story of Tamar and Judah is about God's inexplicable grace and his irresistible power to redeem and make right all that is wrong. So this is Genesis chapter 20, uh, 38. And we're going to read the text in your pew Bibles. It'll be pages 28 and 29, okay? At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Irah. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Deir. She conceived again and gave birth to a son named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kaziv that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Eir, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Eir, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Irah, the Adulamite, went up with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Inaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. 
when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with me, she asked. I'll send you a young goat for my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute beside the road at Enaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute they said, here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her besides the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute there. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. But three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out. Take her and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent the message to her father-in-law. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shalah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he, withdrew, when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. And his brother, who had, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out and he was named Sarah. This is, this is a wild passage. Here's my title. Here's my title for this passage, for this sermon. Wronged woman makes right man gone wrong. Wronged woman makes right man gone wrong. This is a redemption story. Keep that in mind. But let me set the stage. Genesis chapter 35, God makes a promise to Jacob. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. God makes a promise to Abraham that through his seed the whole world will be blessed. Through his descendants the whole world will be blessed. Then you go Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. And God repeats the promise to, to Jacob and says, A nation and a community of nations will come from you and kings will be among your descendants. That's the promise of God to Jacob. Well, Jacob has 12 sons. But here's the problem with that. He has 12 sons, but he's an unwise father who plays favorites and doesn't even try to hide it. He has his favorite son, Joseph, and he treats Joseph way better than all the other sons. Gives him stuff that the other sons don't get, gets all the attention, all the really cool stuff 
and his brothers start to feel envy and jealousy and anger toward their father and toward their brother Joseph. Now Joseph, the favorite son, is a very unwise son. He basks in his father's attention and he holds it over his brothers. He's a tattletale. When they do something that's bad, he goes running to his father to tell on them. Who likes that? And then he has these dreams and the way the dreams are interpreted is that his brothers will bow down before him and honor him even though he's the younger one. And when he starts telling those dreams, our text tells us They hated him all the more. So they're jealous and they're envious and they hate their brother and they they decide they're gonna, they, they come up with a plot. They decide they're going to kill their brother, throw him down a well, and they go back to their father and say, a ferocious beast must have killed him. So what can we say about this family? It's really messed up. It's divided, it's dysfunctional. It's actually kind of despicable. I mean, think about that. This is the family of promise and it looks like they're gonna tear each other apart. Nations and kings will come out of this family? Seriously? Well, what happens is that Judah at this point emerges as a leader in this family, leader among his brothers. And he thinks about this plan, let's kill him and throw him down the well. He says, you know, I, I have another plan. Let's just, what, you know, if we kill him, there's no gain for us in that. Let's sell him to the, into slavery to the Ishmaelites. And then we can just split the proceeds. And the brothers say, hmm, That's a good plan, let's do that. So they do that. They sell their brother into slavery. That's Judah's first act of leadership, selling his brother into slavery. And it's pretty clear that if you ask the question, what kind of leader will Judah be? Well, it seems like what drives his leadership is jealousy and greed. Okay, this leads us to chapter 38. And chapter 38 opens up with, at this time, Judah left. Judah left his father and his brothers. Now, here's what we need to understand. That's not that uncommon for us. We, kids grow up, they move, move away from home. That was extremely uncommon in that culture. It was seen as a terrible, shameful, wrong thing to do. Judah leaves. We don't know why he leaves. The text doesn't say. Maybe he started feeling guilty about selling his brother into slavery. But if that's so, then we can add cowardness to jealousy and greed because the right thing to do would have been to stay and make things right, not run away. Judah runs away from his problems. He sells his brother slavery, abandons his family, runs away from his responsibilities. And then what happens? He starts hanging out with his Adulamite named Ira. They become best friends. So here he is. He's hanging out with a Canaanite, Ira. And uh, it kind of rubs off on him. 
he, uh, he sees this, this woman. He decides he's going to marry her. She's a daughter of Shua. And this is the first, and he mar- so he marries her. And this is the first time recorded in scripture of an Israelite marrying a member of the Canaanites. Judah knows he's not supposed to do that. His grandfather, his father, were clear about not marrying outside the Israelites, not marrying Canaanites. Judah knows that. He does it anyway. Now, there's a reason that, they, that he should not have married a Canaanite. The Canaanites were idol worshipers, p- pagan worshipers. They practiced a, a fertility cult religion. They had... They, uh, Use sex as a way to kind of appease and, and uh, appease the gods so they would have a bountiful harvest, to have great flocks. And he also practiced child sacrifice. So, what's going on? Judah has then three sons through this Canaanite woman. His sons grew up, they're ready to be married themselves. So, this tells us that about 20 years have passed. It's pretty clear at this point that Judah has no plans to go back home. He wasn't just on a short vacation. He's really abandoned his family, walked away from his responsibility, and he's walked away from his God. He's living like a Canaanite. This is is like a kid who grows up in a Christian family, say. And he grows up Maybe he goes off to college, or maybe he goes into the military, or maybe he just starts hanging out with, you know, the gangs on his, his street, his block. And the people he's hanging out with rub off on him, and he goes off the rails and does crazy, wild stuff. That, that's actually some of my story. Most of the kids that I hung up with when I was younger are dead or in jail. And if it weren't for the grace of God and also the commitment of my parents who kept fighting for me, I would have gone completely off the rails too, I think. I'd be a different person than I am today. When we cut ourselves off from God's people, eventually we start to cut ourselves off from the life of God. It becomes easier to disregard God's wisdom and truth. It becomes, we start to take on the values and priorities of the people around us because they seem good and right and easy and fun. But here's the thing, they come back to bite us eventually. They bite us hard. Without the encouragement, without the example of godly people, it's really hard to stay connected to God. It's really hard to lead lead a God-honoring life. We need one another. Judah walks away. Now, Judah marries off his oldest son, Er, to a young woman called Tamar. 
She's probably about 15 years old. That's the time when they would get married. And she's probably a Canaanite. The text doesn't tell us that, but it seems logical that she'd be a Canaanite. Now, as unlikely as it would seem, God uses this young Canaanite woman to start a sequence of events that interrupt and change Judah's life trajectory so that his family is saved. Now, we're going to unpack that as we go, but Ayer, we're told, was wicked in the Lord's sight, and so God kills him. Judah then goes to his second son, Onan, and tells him to marry his brother's widow in accordance with an ancient law, a custom known as Leverite marriage. It comes from the Latin word Lever, which literally means brother-in-law. So Judah goes to his son Onan and says, hey, Onan, go marry your brother's widow. Now, last week when, when Liz Joel was preaching on Deborah, she, she used a phrase that made me start laughing and said, that's good, I'm going to use that. She said, what the heck is this? This is one of those, what the heck is this kinds of passages in the Bible. Leverant marriage, marrying your brother-in-law's widow, what is that? Well, here's what it is. When a man died without children, something needed to be done, one, to keep the man's memory alive, two, to keep his family line of descent going. That was really important in that culture. Three, to provide a destiny for his inheritance. And four, to produce offspring, to produce children, to look after his widow as she grew older. The brother-in-law, was, the brother was expected to marry his wife's widow, or at least to sleep with her so that she had children who would count as her husband's children. Deuteronomy 25, his widow must not marry outside of the family. Her husband's brother shall marry her to do these things that I just meant, those four things I just mentioned. Now, what does Onan do? Well, Onan doesn't mind sleeping with Tamar, but he doesn't want to father her child. Why? Verse 9, 38, 9. Onan knew that the child would not be his. He would father a child, but the child would not be his child. It would be considered his brother heir's child. That meant that he would receive, that child would receive a heir's share of the family inheritance. So why doesn't Onan want to do this? Because he doesn't want to share the inheritance. To give an example, rough example, let's say there was a family inheritance of $100,000. Now, if there are three people sharing the inheritance, it's 33000 some odd dollars, right? A little over 33000 There's only two, it's 50000 apiece. Onan was quite willing to uh, violate his family responsibilities for a lot, just a larger share of the estate. He was not willing to take on his family responsibilities. So what happens? Onan becomes like his father Judah, not willing to step up to do what he's supposed to do. So what happens? God brings judgment on Onan also. The Lord puts him to death. Now, I should, I should mention that when the text says they, that God put Ayer to death, that's the first time in the Bible that, God is to, uh, that it says that God put someone to death. So there's a lot of firsts in this passage. First time 
An Israelite marries a Canaanite first time that God puts them to death personally, if you will. And there are going to be some other firsts in this passage. So what does Judah do now, though? Custom, justice demanded that he give his son Shelah to Tamar when he's ready for marriage. But Judah decides not going to do that. Why? Because he's about to play the blame game. He's playing the blame game. He doesn't want to face the fact that his sons were evil, and that's why God took them. He wants to say, no, it's not my sons, it's her. She's jinxed. She's cursed. She she forced me to it. She deserves all this stuff, right? He scapegoats Tamar. He's too cowardly cowardly to ship to face his shortcomings as a father. How did his sons get this way? Maybe he had something to do with it. He doesn't want to admit that, so it's all her fault. He blames Tamar to justify himself to avoid taking responsibility for his own actions and failures. The blame game has been played since the Garden of Eden continues to be blamed today. We all play it one time or another in our lives. Some of us do it a lot. It's not my fault. I had no choice. They drove, it to, they drove me to it. They deserved it. We blame others for our faults instead of owning up to them. We justify our selfish, sinful, and unjust actions instead of admitting our fault to make, and trying to make things right. It's also kind of what we do when we justify our apathy, our apathy towards the injustice that goes on all around us. We didn't have anything to do with that. It's not our fault they're suffering. There's nothing we can do. It's too big for us. We, you know, we come up with excuses to justify not trying to do what we can do to make things right in the world around us. God has a word for that. He calls it sin. It's injustice. We play the blame game. Now, what Judah should have done is he should have taken up his responsibility to to provide for Tamar. He should have watched over her, protected her, provided, made sure that she was cared for. He didn't do any of that. He should have been willing to honor his dead brother Ayer by making sure that his dead, uh, the dead son, I should say, Ayer, to make sure that he had a descendant. He didn't do that. He, again, continues to walk away from his family responsibilities. So what Judah really does to Tamar is he, he, violates, he violates her by shirking responsibilities. He denies her right care, the right to care and well-being. He shames her, destroys her status in the community. Well, time passes. Judah's wife dies and he goes through the period of mourning that's prescribed. And then when the period of mourning is over, you know what he does first thing? He goes to a wild, out of control party. He goes to a Canaanite sheep shearing festival. And that's an excuse for a crazy party. It's a time with all kinds of, well, all kinds of stuff. 
So there he is. He's off doing this. Meanwhile, Tamar is still holed up. He's, she's in her father's house. She's in her widow's clothing. She's awaiting Shalah, waiting patiently for Tamar to fulfill, for, for Judah to fulfill his responsibilities to her. But it becomes clear that Judah's not going to do that. So Tamar decides to fight back. She decides she's not going to let herself be a victim. She removes her widow's garb. She covers herself with a veil, seats herself at the entrance to Inayim, disguises herself as a prostitute. Now, let me just say this right here. In the, in the passage, it's interesting, there are two different words that are used for prostitute. There's the word zonah, which simply means prostitute, and there's a, another word, kedeshah, which means a shrine prostitute, a cult prostitute, a religious prostitute, if you will. When Judah uses the word prostitute, he uses zonah, prostitute. When his friend the Adulamite uses it, he uses shrine prostitute. I think there's something interesting there, important there about how people, how she was viewed. But anyway, she, um, she dresses herself that way because she knows her father-in-law. She knows what kind of man he is. She knows that when he passes by and sees her, he's going to stop and proposition her. And that's exactly what happens. He stops, he propositions her, he negotiates a payment, payment, a payment plan, and things happen. Now, when they were negotiating, and Tamar says, what will you give me? And he says, a young goat, and says, what's the proof that you're gonna give me this? What, I need a pledge. Judah says, Here's the ple- uh, what pledge you want. She says, cord and seal and staff. Now, in that culture, in our culture, that would be the equivalent of giving someone you don't know your driver's license, your credit card, and your social security number. That's a really, really foolish thing to do. And Judah does this really, really, really foolish thing. Why? Because he's driven by his impulses and appetites more than by his conscience and his commitments. He's a foolish man. Tamar becomes pregnant. She goes back home, takes off all her um, um, shrine prostitute gear. The veil, for, by the way, was something that only a, a shrine prostitute would use. So it, was, it was a distinguishing mark. She takes that off, puts on her widow's clothes, goes back home. Three months pass by. Um, and then the word gets to Judah that Tamar is pregnant. And he becomes furious. He just, he gets rip-roaring, out of control, furious. Take her and have her burned. The Hebrew actually has only two words. Take, burn. Take, burn. Take, burn for what? Take, burn for Tamar, in his mind, doing what he does all the time. What he does without even thinking about. 
It's a double standard that was true then and still is true in our culture. It's still true. Even in our culture, there's a double standard. So she is taken, she's being brought to be burned, and along the way, as she's going, she says, please take this, take a message to my father-in-law. She says, the person who owns these is the one who made me pregnant. Take these to my father-in-law and see if he recognizes whose they are. That word recognize is, a, is the Hebrew word naker. It's a strong word. It's a word that means not just, you know, yeah, yeah, I see this. But it's a word that has to do with, it means to discern, to understand, and to acknowledge. It has a full range of meaning. Of meaning. So she, she brings that to, to so the message she, with the cord, the seal, and the staff. And Judah, when he sees it, he has a naker moment. He discerns that he's the one that made her pregnant. He understands for the first time what he has done, what he has been doing to Tamar. And he acknowledges that he has unjustly treated her. He has sinned against her. And this is the first time also, another first, first time in the Bible that someone publicly admits, confesses their sin. Judah discerns what he's done. He understands the depth of his sin and injustice. He acknowledges it publicly. And it's here that we begin to see the full extent of Tamar's plan. It seems very likely that Tamar was the one who leaked the info that she was pregnant. She wanted to be caught. This was a bold, audacious, risky plan. But it's the only kind of plan that would grab Judah's attention and force him to look at himself as he really was, as he really is. And Judah does recognize. He's caught and he confesses. She is, our text says she's more righteous than I. Bruce Walkin, Old Testament scholar, says a better way to translate that Hebrew phrase is she is righteous, not I. She is righteous, not I. Judah was, a, was about to have her burned for violating her marriage, and, Ju- and Judah now recognizes, in fact, he was the one who violated her marriage. He treated her. He violated twice over. She didn't break her marital vow. He broke the vows. She was not guilty of being a prostitute. He was guilty of actually treating her like a prostitute. He and his sons treat her like a prostitute, really treat her like property. He gets mad because she's his property and does something that he didn't order. And then he gets confronted with that and he finally begins to see. They should have watched over her. They should have honored her, helped her to fulfill her desire to bear children. They should have kept on the family line. They didn't. 
and he begins to realize it now. She had been more faithful to her husband, Ayer, than Judah had been to his son. So she forced him, she forced Judah to do what was right, to keep his promises, to treat all his sons equally, to care for his descendants. Now, how does the story end? It ends with Tamar being fully vindicated. She's fully vindicated by God. God gives her twins, two children. She's fully vindicated in the community. Judah steps up and takes up his family responsibilities. Those twin boys serve as replacements, in a sense, for his dead sons, for Er and Onan. And Judah raises them as his sons. They show up in chapter 46 of Genesis in the census of the people, the Israelites moved, going into Egypt. They are listed as Judah's sons. They're listed, she's vindicated in the Bible, Ruth 4.12, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. May your family be like that of Perez whom Tamar, Tamar bore to Judah. She's held up as someone of esteem in the scriptures. And Perez son of Tamar and simultaneously son and grandson to Judah. He becomes the ancestor to King David and eventually to King Jesus. Tamar is fully vindicated and the promise of God to Jacob in Genesis 35 is being carried forth. It's getting fulfilled. Judah recognizes and he acknowledges his guilt both to Tamar and to himself and to all those around. He publicly acknowledges that. And this leads him on a path of repentance and maturity. He realizes his responsibility to others. He determines to start meeting those responsibilities. He will no longer run away. The next time we meet him, he's back with his brothers. And it has to be what happened in chapter 38 that changes him and puts it in his heart to return home again. And when he returns home, he starts taking up his family responsibilities. He starts to try to lead his family well. Genesis chapter 44 has this wonderful picture of what happens to him. Now, what happens to Joseph is he gets sold into slavery, but eventually he ends up and he has years of suffering and the suffering kind of gives him humility and he becomes, he was a man of integrity, but he adds humility to that. And he ends up rising to be second in Pharaoh's household and when there's a famine in, Egypt, uh, in Israel uh, and Joseph's family come to Egypt looking for food. Joseph is there to meet them, but he disguises himself. And there's just all kinds of stuff. You'll have to read it to catch up on the fullness of the story. But there's an encounter in chapter 44 where Joseph, who they see is Pharaoh's uh, chief of staff, Joseph is meeting with the brothers, and he wants them to send for the younger brother, Benjamin, who's now the father's favorite. And, and Judah knows that's going to that's not going to be good for his father. So he says this. Please, he's speaking to his brother Joseph, but he doesn't know it's his brother. Please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. 
And then a little later, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Judah is transformed from the one who's willing to sell his brother into slavery to the one who's willing to put himself into slavery, to sell his brother into slavery. It's willing to become the one to go into slavery to protect his brother. He's the one who doesn't care about ripping his father's heart to shred to the one whose heart breaks at the thought of his father grieving. He becomes, Judah becomes a different man. He becomes a flat out different man. So what does this story teach us? Four takeaways. God cares about the vulnerable. He grants them justice. And we're called to do the same thing. What does God do? He vindicated Tamar's Tamar's actions. He gives her two children. She was put down by the world and God raised her up. She had lost her future and God restored it to her. He does that for people whose future has been lost or stolen. He looks at the injustice that's been done to her and God says, no, this is not going to be allowed to happen. He vindicates her. He cares about justice. We have to act the same way. We are God's agents of justice in the world. Two, only God has the right to define us. Tamar refused to be diminished or intimidated by the the injustice that she suffered. We have to know that each human being is made in the image of God and deserving for that reason of all respect and honor and dignity. We have to know that we cannot define and judge any other person. And we cannot let any other person define and judge us. Only God can do that. And what God says to us is that we are fearfully and wonderfully made beloved people. Amen. Amen. Third, this passage tells us that no one is irredeemable. You look at Judah. He's consumed by jealousy and hatred. He's a coward. He runs away from his responsibilities. He engages in all kinds of sinful, unlawful behavior. And you think, if anyone is irredeemable, it's got to be this guy Judah. And then what happens? God sort of interrupts his life. The grace of God just explodes over his life and changes the trajectory He becomes a different man. He becomes redeemed. He becomes transformed. He becomes the kind of man I'd like to be. No one's life is irredeemable. Only God can make that designation. So we can't give up on ourselves, our lives. None of our lives are redeemable. We cannot give up on ourselves. Sometimes we're tempted to do that. Our story's not over yet. We cannot give up on ourselves. And we cannot give up on anybody else. Their story's not over yet either. No one is irredeemable. Now, because of her courage, Tamar becomes, in a sense, a mirror that does not lie. 
She stands in front of Judah and she reveals to Judah who he really is so that he can see it. He can't lie anymore about himself. He just, he just can't lie. All of us need people like that in our lives because we all lie to ourselves about who we are. We have all kinds of ways to lie to ourselves about who we are. We need people who tell us the truth about ourselves so that we can become all that God has called us to be. We need people like that. Tamar is a woman who's been wronged and God uses this wrong woman to make right a man gone wrong. Here's this woman. She's a marginalized Canaanite woman. And God uses her to put the power of the gospel on display. He uses her to advance his redemptive purposes for Judah and for the world. So some questions for us. Do we let, do you let people speak truth to you? Are you willing to be held accountable to become the person you want to become, that God wants you to become? Where do you see injustice? It's injustice all around us. Where do you see it? And how might God use you to bring justice where there is injustice? How might God use you? He used a marginalized Canaanite woman to advance his purposes. He can surely use me and you. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that you watch over us. Thank you that you love us. Lord, thank you that you don't give up on us, that you fight for us. Thank you that you place us in communities where people fight for us as well. Lord, help us to take advantage of all that you are and all that you've given us so that we might be all that you want us to be to your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.